Welcome to the Beltway Broadcast, the premier podcast for the workplace learning and talent development professionals of the Association for Talent Development's Metro DC chapter. We've got some great resources in store for you today. Hello, fellow ATDers. I'm Christina Eanes, owner of Eanes Training, as well as a chapter past president and a member of the pod squad here at the Metro DC chapter for the Association of Talent Development. Hey, everyone. I'm Stephanie Hebka, and I am the managing partner of Protos Learning. And like Chris, I am also a chapter past president as well as a member of the pod squad. Wow. We also have a, our producer, Helena Hodges. For this episode, we are interviewing David McRaney. Welcome, David. Hey, so nice to be here. How are you? Oh, we're, oh, we're doing great. awesome. Mm. We're we great. We're excited to hear your wisdom. I know. I'm on the red team we... with the, the, the <laughs> I've got the red room. You've got the red shirts. We're all good. I there love we the go. Theme. I love the we're theme. We're set. Yeah. <laughs> so now before we do get into the topic of how minds change based on your third book, mm -hmm. uh, can you share a little bit about your background with our listeners who may not be familiar with you? Sure. I, um, I, Back in the day, I owned pet stores and worked construction, and at some point was like, I should go to school for something. And I went to school for psychology, but about uh, right at the end of that program, I switched over to journalism and then went from that into a career in newspapers. And then I helped uh, TV stations learn how to write for the web when that was a thing people cared about. And somewhere in the middle of doing that, I stopped writing and which is what I wanted to do. And I started a blog about uh, biases, fallacies, heuristics, psychology stuff that I liked. And I just lucked up. I was in the right place at the right time. I got a book deal out of that. And then from there, I made a podcast. It's still going. I think it was like the fifth podcast. And I was in the right place at the right time there. Mm -hmm. And I just went off into my own career as a science journalist who covers psychology, the psychology of reasoning and decision-making and judgment. And that's what I still do. I love it. I too am fascinated with human behavior, uh, as many of us are, right? But I, I'm in particular with how minds change. I love, well, I almost want to open this up with, can you tell us how, um, LG, T, <laughs> LGBTQ plus, sorry, I gotta make sure I get it right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, conspiracy theorists. Can you tell us a little bit of a foundation for that on how minds change? Yeah. Well, I mean, my interest in this uh, came from, I was, I was giving a lecture. The, the actual origin story of the book is I was giving a lecture about uh, motivated reasoning and the, if, uh, I guess I should tell people what that is. What is motivated reasoning? Uh, you're all familiar with it. If, even if you haven't heard the term, you ever had a friend who like recently fell in love and you're asking them, like, what do you like about this person? So what you're really saying is, what are your reasons for being in love mm -hmm. with them? And they'll say, oh, I like the way they talk. I like the way they walk. I like, I even like the way they cut their food. I uh, <laughs> And the, the music they're introducing me to. And you're, you're like, mm, that's great. That's great. And then a couple months later, they're breaking up with that exact same person. <laughs> yes. And you ask them, what are your reasons for breaking up with them? And they say, uh -huh. well, honestly, I mean, where do I start? Like, I don't even like the way they walk. Like they, <laughs> the way they walk across a room is all jangly. Uh, I don't like the way they talk anymore. Like it's like the, it's like nails on my bones. Uh -huh. The other day I saw them cutting a Snickers bar with a <laughs> fork and knife. 
and uh, the stupid music I have to listen to in the car. So reasons for will become reasons against when the motivation to search for justifications and rationalizations for your emotional state changes. That's motivated reasoning and all human reasoning is motivated. And I have talked about this for, for ages and someone came up to me after one of my lectures and she asked about her father had fallen into a conspiracy theory. And that was relatively not mainstream at the time. And she asked for advice. And I, my advice was that you can't reason a person out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. By the way, I no longer believe that. And I felt myself as I was saying this feel like that is an awful thing to tell someone. And also, I don't know enough about this topic to be giving that kind of advice. And at the same time that I was saying this, the norms and attitudes about same-sex marriage in the United States were flipping. And I had someone come on my podcast who told me it was the fastest change in public opinion ever recorded. Um, In roughly 12 years, America went from 60 plus percent opposed to 60 plus percent in favor. And I just thought, I want to understand this. What happened in people's brains between these two points? And I imagine taking all those people and putting them in a time machine and sending them back to meet themselves and how they would argue with their own selves. Mm. And I just needed to understand this, the level of neurons going all the way up. And that's how this whole project got going. And to your point, like there's a, there is connection here and that the same psychology that is behind a viewpoint that's, let's say, politically motivated or a sports team motivated or uh, some sort of religion, pseudo-religion or cult. Uh, these most people's opposition to same-sex marriage had nothing to do with their actual opinions about LGBTQ anything. It was just a signaling yeah. mechanism to show that I'm a good member of my group that had deep impact on other people. And for other people, it was, you know, it was pseudo-religious in that they their particular uh, denomination had come out against it for some reason. And others who were reading from the same religious text didn't share that opinion. So it was purely cultural. It had nothing to do with the religion. So all of this stuff was bound in there and I needed to understand it. But what I didn't want to do was do like Wikipedia with jokes. That's not the kind of book I wanted to write. (laughs) I wanted to go be there in person. So this book is on the ground. I went to Westboro Baptist Church. I went and embedded myself with cults and conspiracy theory communities. I went and spent time with activists who go door to door and discuss difficult wedge issues with people at their homes. Mm. All, and then also all the scientists in the book are people I, I did interview them in person. It was, uh, it wasn't just go read this book, go to Wikipedia and make it fun. That's why it nearly destroyed me to write this book, but I'm very happy that it's like, it's like nothing else you'll read on the topic. So we're very grateful that you did. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, absolutely right. And, you know, as you're talking, these are, you know, some of the the environments you are, are talking about are especially extreme. But mm. I think what you're describing is probably something all of us can relate to, perhaps not to that level. But certainly, you know, we've been embedded in groups or we've worked with people who simply don't seem to want to change their mind. Maybe Mm -hmm. they don't feel able, maybe they're not willing, but there's something about the process that feels contentious to them. Tell us a little bit about why it can be so hard to change someone's mind. What's going on that makes it so tough? Well, you know, if you, if you want to change a person's mind on any topic, you either have, you're going to do, it's going back to the motivated reasoning thing. So you're either going to Mm -hmm. motivate them to update their priors or you're going to 
uh, sap some of their motivation to resist doing so. Mm. Either way, it's going to involve motivations that they may not have ever articulated, uh, motivations they may not be aware of that must be brought to fore before you can have a conversation about it. What you're not going to do is dump a bunch of facts on them or send them a bunch of YouTube videos or say, hey, read this book and uh, expect to get any kind of results. There's all sorts of reasons for that. Um, one of the things you have to avoid, the most powerful form of, of resistance is going to be called reactance. It's very, mm -hmm. it's very baseline. It's, um, if you're, if you've ever been a teenager or you've ever, uh, talked to one and, uh, they, let's say their room looks like something out of an episode of hoarders and they know it yeah. and like in, in your mind, like imagine you're this teenager in your mind, you have this neon sign going on and off that says, you should clean your room. You should clean your room. You should clean your room. And then your mom comes along and says, Hey, you should clean your room. Your reaction <laughs> oftentimes would be to go in there and throw a candy wrapper or something on the pile and then Scrooge McDive into the pile. That's reactance. Because what, yeah. what you're pushing back against is someone stealing your autonomy, someone stealing your agency. Mm -hmm. And the arguments are irrelevant. And if that happens in any kind of discussion with another person where they feel like you are threatening their autonomy, the issue will not actually be discussed. I mean, your mouth, your mouth is a move, but you're not actually talking about anything. Similarly, so uh, we're social primates. I, I hate to uh, inform everyone if you're not aware of this, but we are social primates. <laughs> chim chim we're chimpanzees, bonobos, humans. Uh, there used to be more, uh, but we outcompeted them. And that means one of the things that gives us our great power as a species is our sociality. And if, though we like to think our primary motivation is to hold accurate beliefs or have attitudes that are in line with like a, a large sample size of experience or values that like will reduce harm instead of cause harm. Those are all noble. And if everything is working in our favor and we're very safe, yes, we'll pursue those kinds of goals. But if there's any opportunity for us to pursue the goal of improving our reputation or our status or defending those things, that will take precedent. And if you're having a conversation with someone and anything you do triggers them to sense that you are about to suggest they ought to be ashamed for what they mm -hmm. think, feel, and believe, conversation's over. And, yeah. and they may not even know the conversation's over. You might not know it. You end up having this unrealistic like debate thing that doesn't go anywhere because what's actually happening is this person is defending their identity and they're defending their position within their trust group even if they're not aware they're doing that. And it's very easy yeah. to do. Like you can imagine you ask someone, what's your opinion on gun control? And they say, well, uh, you know, I think everybody should own a gun, but I also think, and then if they see you go before you've even spoken these, this micro expression and this little inhalation, they sense, okay, I'm about to have to defend my actual like identity as a human being before I start with the issue. So yeah. those things are often where we make our error and the, the, to sum this up so I can, so you can ask more than one question is uh, <laughs> like That's great. the biggest, the, when it comes to all that, like sociality is so important. Brooke Harrington, the sociologist told me that if there was an equals MC square of social science, it would be the fear of social death is greater than the fear of physical death. And yeah. that means if you feel like your reputation is on the line, you'll put your reputation in the lifeboat and let the boat go to the bottom of the ocean and we saw that. We saw that with COVID. We saw people choosing not to get vaccinated, not masking. And the only value they were getting out of that was demonstrating, I'm a member of us, not a member of them. And mm. we, you would be surprised how much of your 
current behavior is in line with that sort of motivation. So a lot of the persuasion techniques that I talk about in the book that actually work, they're not about me trying to copy and paste how I feel about something into you. It's yeah. about opening up a space to give you a the opportunity for someone to non-judgmentally listen to you. And you can then introspect and metacognate and reveal those things to yourself. And once they're out in the open, most people are like, ooh, I would prefer to have opinions based on other things. Or you will reveal some sort of cognitive dissonance, or you will reveal that their certainty or their confidence level isn't warranted, or their epistemology is out of whack. But that happens on their side. It happens in their minds. So at the end of the day, they're changing their own mind. You're not forcing anything to take place, and it avoids a lot of the resistance that usually gets between us and other people. I, I've, I've summed this up, I guess, by saying, like, if you think people are unreachable, it's almost like saying, um, it's almost like trying to get, take a ladder to get to the moon. And then when it fails, you're like, oh, the moon's unreachable. Uh, no, it just turns out it's harder than that. Uh, you need different tools. Uh, and I find that a lot of people are blaming people that they can't reach out to or that seem to be crazy or stupid or fooled. Uh, they're bl putting all the blame on them when they are using really terrible rhetorical techniques to try to reach out to those people and, and, and see eye to eye on any way. Absolutely. You know, honestly, I think, <laughs> I think the book should be mandatory reading so that we could just get along better as a world. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> well, I, understand that. I mean, to leap off your point, like we, like boomers, Gen X, elder millennials lived in a pre-internet world. And then, mm -hmm. uh, then you've got everybody else all the way down to Gen Z and alpha, but we're all in the same thing now. It's never been, it's never been a thing in human history. We all live in the same information ecosystem. We all live in the same epistemological chaos and we all have to deal with it. So we have like a five generation spread that has to figure out how to be a new kind of person. And we're yeah. really bad at it. You may have noticed this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and anything that traffics in information exchange is massively disrupted right now. Politics, medicine, academia, all of it. Mm -hmm. And we keep trying to fix this stuff by using the tools the way that we used to use them. And it, we're all going to have to develop a completely new literacy to move forward. And some of us are going to do that. And some of us ain't. And that's how it's yeah. going to go. <laughs> now, I, I was wondering, too, because uh, a lot of our viewers, are, are ourselves here, right? Viewers, uh, listeners, we work in uh, learning and development. Mm -hmm. Are there any particular tips for those of us who are trying to train others and create learning um, experiences that we can help yeah, help change minds. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, where do I even start? Uh, so, <laughs> Top five. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if you're teaching, you know, so how do, let's talk about how minds change at all. Like the way minds change, it's a dopaminergic uh, response. It just means dopamine squirts. Um, I know people think dopamine is the reward chemical. It is not. That, uh, that's, that went viral and it's just not true. Uh, dopamine is a motivation chemical. It, it, what it does is it makes, it draws all your attention to a certain task and keeps you on task. And for instance, if, if right now, while we were talking, one of us had a spider crawl across our desk and then it's wearing a top hat and it sort of like, oh, don't say that. <laughs> and it said it, it is doffing its hat at us. And, um, we get this massive dopamine response that would, cause us to direct our attention to what's going on because this is novel. <laughs> this is weird. This is ambiguous. 
And there are two systems that will come online. One's called assimilation. One's called, accom- called accommodation. Assimilation and accommodation. Assimilation is trying to take anything um, that is novel and ambiguous and find a way for it to fit into our existing understanding. Basically make it seem like, oh yeah, I knew that was going to happen. And then accommodation <laughs> is saying, well, this is either means I'm wrong or uh, I need an update because this doesn't fit into my current model. So when it comes to the spiders uh, example, you will, I love that Stephanie is like, please stop using that as an example. Um, <laughs> you can visibly see it, right? <laughs> right. Let me, let me change it for Stephanie. It's a, 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 uh, a, a line of frogs are in a little marching band. <laughs> I'm back in. Okay, we're cool. good to go. Yes. <laughs> so you, yes, what's going to happen that. is you're going to direct your attention to it, and you're going to enter a state of active learn, learning. Because what your brain wants to do is make it so that this is more predictable in the future, and the surprise is a suggestion. Ooh, this could be bad. So the problem here is if you assimilate versus accommodate, there's a risk reward here. If you turns out if you change your mind when you don't need to, well, that means that you just became wrong. And if you don't change your mind when you ought to, that means you stay wrong. Both are bad. So we need to figure out which way to go. But as all these models have gotten us to here so far, so it's better to err on the side of assimilation. What I'm suggesting is you'll go, hmm, I must have drank coffee that somebody slipped some acid into. <laughs> yeah, that was my first thought. <laughs> or, or, wow, I have a friend who's playing an incredible practical joke on me. This, like, these, are, these could be robots. Maybe this is a hologram. What you don't do initially is say, huh, I didn't know frogs can do that. Because <laughs> that, would, that would mean you have to update all sorts of stuff, right? And children are doing this all the time. They see a dog for the first time and you tell them that's a dog and something in their mind's like, Okay, non-human, not wearing clothes, walks on all fours, got covered in fur, got it. Then they see a horse for the first time and they they often will say, oh, look, a dog. Mm, or they say, look at that big right. dog. And they're trying to assimilate because they're like not wearing clothes, covered in fur, not a person, walks on all fours. This is supposed to be dog. And when you tell them, no, that's a horse, this is a great mind expanding moment. They actually develop a completely new perceptual category that will subsume the other two things. So now they have mm-hmm. to, to at least, they may not even name it, but they need a category like animal or creature in which you have dogs and horses. Mm-hmm. And that is an accommodating moment that that is very mind expanding because it, it suggests there may be all sorts of stuff that goes in there. It really changes the way you see the world going forward. So we are always doing this. We're always assimilating. We're always accommodating, favoring assimilation. And we get really good at accommodating at a certain point. And so this is all part of pedagogy when it comes to learning and teaching. And it's important to frame things in a way that people can, um, children especially can uh, take a little bit of what they already know and then add some of the new to it and build on that foundationally. And when it comes to adults, you know, you're going to have to uh, really deal with how easy it is to pretend like, Oh yeah, I, this just makes sense. I can find a way for this to make sense. Uh, Probably this is a a takeaway that I find a lot of people get real weird about, but, um, this is all the evidence points to this and just get ready. There's a before and after, like before you hear Uh this, you'll think one thing. And then after you'll feel a different way. Um, Mm -hmm. The more educated you are and the more intelligent you are, the better you become at justifying and rationalizing whatever it is you think, feel and believe. Uh, In other words, you get better at staying wrong. If being wrong serves you in some way. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yes. Uh, There's a, (laughs) Uh, I, I, 
I, I, I find that some people really can't take that. Uh, there's, yeah, no. there's, there's a, there's a <laughs> sensibility that is, Oh, everything I, you know, no, I'm con- because I'm smart, because I'm educated, I have the best opinions. Right. But it, it turns yeah, out no. if you are motivated to think, feel, and believe a certain way, you become really good at finding some way to do it. It's basically, if you want to eat the chocolate cake, you'll find a reason to do it, <laughs> Yes. but you can scale that up to just about anything. Absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. think. That makes a lot of sense. And I have for forgiven the use of the spiders with the top. Okay, By the way, that vision will stay with me. But I, I what I what I'd love to hear about too, you know, especially in the context of of some of what you've shared, is the role of empathy mm-hmm. and how that factors into how we might change other people's minds. Cause especially for those of us in talent development, empathy is a big topic for many yeah. of us. But you know, really thinking about what it's like to perhaps be in a training session with people who perhaps are not bringing the same open-minded growth mindset energy to the session that you would uh, otherwise hope for. What does empathy look like when you're trying to persuade people or change their mind? This is the, the thing that I probably has, I have the most pushback on. And I understand. Really? I understand. Yeah. Um, if you are in a marginalized group, uh, especially someone who faces like physical danger uh, there are people who hate you and wish you harm and, or there yeah. are, you have friends and family, loved ones who are subject to that sort of thing. And your goal is to change the world in a, in the way that we're, your, your ob, the objective is to change those people's minds. Then the idea of offering empathy to that person who is not offering it to you is repulsive. Mm-hmm. I understand. And I would never uh, ask people not to do, to, to offer that sort of thing to people if they don't want to. There are many different ways to go about, uh, engaging in, uh, acts that will lead to changing the world and getting what you want out of this. But if you do want to persuade those people, you want those, that, that person who holds an attitude or a belief or a value or an intention to behave that, is harmful or puts poison in the world in some way. And you want to change that person or many of those people, uh, then there's no way around. You're going to have to do so in a way that's going to require some cognitive empathy on your part. Yeah. I, if you don't want to do that, then you just have to choose another type of, uh, tactic, another type of approach. I totally get it. I, I, I would never ask anyone to do this. if they doesn't want to do it this way. Uh, the, what I'm s- suggesting is you have to, uh, you're going to have to couch your messaging in the value structure of that individual and in the culture from which they come from. You're going to have to avoid reactance, as we mentioned earlier. You're going to have to avoid shaming. Uh, like they literally might ought to be ashamed of how they think, feel, and believe. They, they that, that could be a totally moral, ethical approach on your part. But if you say this out loud or you make that person feel that way, you're going to lose an opportunity to to to, to change them in some way. Um, so the empathy that I ask you to have isn't, oh, I should empathize with their, where they're coming from or their, or their attitude, or I should empathize with their argument. No, I want you to have a, a deeper, more fundamental kind of empathy and a cognitive empathy as what they call it up at NYU. That's who uh, suggested I use that phrase. Cognitive empathy is, re- is recognizing, okay, they have a brain, it's made of neurons, it's a big wobbly yeah. bit of goop up in their head. It's trapped in a skull. It doesn't have any direct access to the outside world. So all reality is subjective reality. This person comes from some sort of culture, some sort of information ecosystem that's not yours, not the same. 
they have different uh pull they have different levers and they have different uh like risks and rewards involved in their behavior all the sorts of stuff and they have probably a very limited amount of experience or they have a taint possibly tainted experiences with the issue at hand that don't match your own it's it's sort of uh the same sort of empathy you might would have with a venomous snake or a uh a, a spider or, yeah or a, a i knew you're doing it chris i knew you're going the same kind of empathy you might have with a um <laughs> like a, a giant boulder rolling down a hill in your direction. Like I have empathy with the fact that there are physical mechanisms at play that are affecting us more foundationally than anything else. And you know what yeah. I mean? You're, you're thinking of this yeah. person as an organism. You're thinking of this person as mm -hmm. a, a series of biological systems playing out. That kind of empathy gives you more access to the kind of techniques that are likely to result in actually affecting change on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And Absolutely. I totally understand that that feels awful in certain situations and you're not required to, to follow through if it, if you're like against it in some way, I totally get that. Absolutely. It, it's fascinating to, uh, to think about empathy in that way too. And I, I appreciate that, especially because it is that need to go a bit deeper than perhaps we're used to where we often talk about. Mm. So, I mean, it's it, I think it's a very important place for people to spend some time thinking. And unfortunately, I I'm looking, you know, I'm looking at the the time and realizing we could spend the rest of the day Hours. digging into this. We, I feel like try, we have scratched try, try the years, surface. Try years. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I'm glad you have spent years because you have books to share. So yes. before we hop into the final three questions hmm. of our time together, I'd actually love it if you would let people know where they can find you, Oh yeah, uh, where they can find your books, where they can uh, maybe uh, reach out if they'd like to. Sure. I, I'm in I'm in so many different organizations now. Uh, the Alliance for Decision Education, the S School of uh, of Thought. Uh, just life is busy all of a sudden. And uh, one of, <laughs> here's here's some things that I uh, I just we're about to launch for Thanksgiving. This thing called uh, the ConspiracyTheory.org. It's it, it explains itself. Just go there. It's a thing you can share with other people, or you can do it yourself. What it will do is it will uh, uh, you'll have a nice reptilian. Uh, uh, ask you what what conspiracy theory are you closest to thinking might can be true, and then it's going to teach you all the critical thinking skills you need to address that sort of thing in the modern wow. world. So that's conspiracytheory.org. Uh, that uh, we were about to launch that. It's uh, so just a fun thing I did with with uh, uh, the school of thought. Me personally, you can find me at davidmcraney.com. There's a page there with the book and a lot of the extra material, including the dress, which is a huge thing that I talk about all the time, why people saw that one way or the other and how that can help mm -hmm. you be a better mind changing person. And then all of my other stuff is that you are not so smart.com. And that's the name of my podcast as well. Well, I think you're going to find Chris and I on a, a couple of those websites and checking out some of those resources Already have. for sure, as well as I know many of you are about to do the exact same thing. David, this has been fantastic. Yeah, and I am so, so glad that we have three final questions for you. If you don't mind sure. three last, uh, last opportunities to share with us at the end of each of our episodes, we like to end with what we call rapid fire questions, okay. three questions. Each one should take no more than about 60 seconds or so to answer. So what do you think? Are you ready for your first one? We'll see. 
<laughs> All right. That's, that's good. We'll run with it. So your first question, give us one book that everyone must read and why. Um, I look around me. That's, that's a tough one. Um, uh, Connections by James Burke, uh, mm. super fundamental to everything that I do. James, am I, uh, he's currently, I met him in his seventies and, uh, I grew up with his material. He destroyed the great man theory of history back in the 1970s. Uh, the suggestion that everything was the result of geniuses and iconoclasts when really it's a bunch of chaotic mumbo jumbo of people trying to make money and accidentally discovering things. Incredible book, incredible series. Series is hard to find. Book is easy to find. That's a great recommendation. All right. Yeah. Uh, thank you for adding to our reading list. Second question for you. What is a tool that you can't live without? Uh, of all things, I just added this to my collection. Uh, it's a little uh, second brain program called Obsidian. Uh, I was trying to do everything through Google Docs, and I still have, have plenty of my life in there. But I found that Obsidian is incredible. Like I can, I can, I can. Basically, it's uh, your own private Wikipedia is what it comes down to. Ah, and you just throw your notes in there, and you every project you have going, every little concept that you have. Over time, it starts becoming this resource that you can go to. So you don't have to go through some sort of wild goose chase to find that thing that you wrote that time or that piece of information you need. It's really cool. So uh, I find it incredibly useful. That and, of course, you know, well, my Oppenel pocket knife that I use all the time. So <laughs> Two tools. Mm -hmm. I like it. And I, I think I am sold now. I've always dreamed of having my own personal Wikipedia. It's really cool. So, it's a, a very a, a little bit of a learning curve, but not really. Like I think yeah. the learning curve is for power users who want to use it to do mm. like deep like programming language things. But for the rest of us, it's really easy. Oh, happy mm. to be a basic user user up front. Same. So that's yeah. that's terrific. Our last question for you, oftentimes referred to as the hardest question we ask, but here we go. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Okay, that's easy cheesy. Uh, so oh, uh, I have three <laughs> answers, but they're all the same answer because it's three pieces of advice that kind of become, they merge together into a Voltron of advice. Uh, old reference. <laughs> the uh, I have it up here on my wall. Uh, Jeremy Utley said, write this somewhere and just and make sure you see it every day. It says, uh, it's just a book, which that that's very helpful. Uh, mm -hmm. Don't Don't try to think that your book is the end all be all of your life and that it has to be perfect and change the world or you'll never finish the damn thing. So that's up yeah. there. Uh, Corey Doctorow uh, gave me a piece of advice and Carl Zimmer gave me a piece of advice that go together like peanut butter and chocolate. So Carl Zimmer said, keep hours as a writer, as a journalist, as a researcher, say, this is when you start and this is when you stop like any other person would and hold to those hours every day. And then Cory Doctorow makes that advice soar by saying, leave a ragged edge. So this is the actual best advice I ever received. Yeah. When you are done for the day, and as a person who makes their own hours, you have to say when that is, I, and I do this, you stop even if you're in the middle of a paragraph, even if you're in the middle of a sentence, that's where you stop. No more emails, no more writing, no more nothing. You stop and pick it up tomorrow. This mm -hmm. The value in this is the ne when you do pick it up the next day, you just sit down and go, oh, yeah. And you just go, you know exactly where to start. Like you finish that sentence, you finish that paragraph. And if I wasn't writing something, I'll put a note on my screen that what I was up to and I'll just pick it up from where I was at. Leaving that ragged edge has changed my life. So, mm. uh, and if you keep your own hours, you have to keep your own hours for that to work. So those 
yeah. two things together. Mm. Best advice ever. Nice. They go well together. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, David, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been amazing. Yeah, it's been the best. I love it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, and of course, we want to thank our community for listening and watching. Before you go, we have a message from our producer, Helena. Do you need consultant services? The Metro DC chapter of ATD has many talented members. Go to dcatd.org and check out our consultants directory under the resources menu option. Check out dcatd.org for upcoming chapter events, learning programs, member benefits, and so much more. <laughs>